My name is Gershon Margolis. I'm the founder of Imperial Advisory, where we provide fractional CFO services to mid-sized businesses. Um, I'm joined today by, I think eventually we'll have my partner, Bob Doyle, I believe. And I'm also joined by the other two CFOs on our team, Aris and, and Buddy. Good morning, everyone. Um, Good morning. And uh, Buddy's thing says Haley, because I guess he got the link from Haley. But you can <laughs> see his face. He's the guy with the green background. Um, and uh, very pleased to be joined by them. And I'm going to start by thanking Haley for getting this all together. And then I'm going to go into talking about Carrie Ann. Carrie Ann is someone I've gotten to know over the last few years. And she has a background in compensation. And, you know, some companies have, have an HR department that deals with compensation. Someone, some companies have a person in an HR department that deals with compensation. Carrie Ann has run departments that deal with compensation and she's had her own consulting firm for the last three years and sad for the small business community, but Carrie Ann has just accepted a job running a compensation SWAT team, I think, but I'm sure she'll tell us more. At, uh, at a company called FIS Global with 62,000 employees across multiple countries. Um, so we're very excited for her and uh, we will we'll miss her though. I'm sure we'll still see her around. Um, and anyway, without further ado, here's Carrie Ann and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. The structure, I guess, with further ado, because yeah. the structure the structure is going to be a Q&A where I'm going to ask some, some questions and Carrie Ann is going to share her thoughts on these topics and then we'll open it up to the crowd. Awesome. So thanks, Gershon. And yeah, we decided rather than sort of a formal presentation like into you all, um, I'm a big believer that compensation requires context and conversation. I think because it's a function that typically has numbers that seems like a finite answer, people think of it as a set of facts. And for me, oftentimes the numbers are just the tip of the iceberg for a diagnostic to see what's really going on, which is why. Um, and also, you know, listen, a full disclaimer, I am not a lawyer. I do not play one on TV. Good enough to be dangerous. Tim, the man right there is the, the lawyer here. Um, but so the way I'm, I'm, I'm going to obviously companies don't want to get sued, you know, for pay equity or other types of compensation issues. Um, but mine is also about thinking about best practice and how do you really incense and retain and motivate your employees in the right way and certainly mitigate any kind of legal risk, um, you know, for just to be frank, doing the right thing. Um, and so thanks, Gershon. You know, my background is. Uh, serpentine to say the least. Um, although most of my career, I grew up on Wall Street, professional services and in tech um, as a compensation executive. And when you work in these large organizations, to be frank, you're managing truly billions of dollars for the organization because compensation of awards is usually the largest expense for these organizations. And so the nice thing is the way I was brought up in this function, I didn't really think of it as expense management. I thought of it as managing an investment portfolio. Like this is your human capital, what you're investing it. And so I, I take a slightly different approach, I think, thought-wise as far as the compensation uh, part of the HR conversation. 
Um, I was really fortunate about three years ago, I was looking at what was in the marketplace and funny enough, pre-COVID, many of the large firms after working 80 hours a week and doing the commute to um, New York City, um, weren't really open to, you know, and I wasn't even looking for remote work, but just a little bit of flex. And so I decided to start my own firm and I was very fortunate to have some amazing partners quickly out of the gate, like Gershon and Adam and Noah and others to really get to know the small and mid-sized business community. And so what's been really fun is taking what I've known from large corporate and then understanding the very unique and specific dynamics that are present for small to mid-sized companies, because you can't assume to scale and just go smaller to what large corporate does. Certainly there thematically, there are things that are similar, but the way you problem solve, and to be frank, when you have to be master of all as an entrepreneur, it's unreasonable to necessarily assume all of the things corporate can get done um, will be able to get done. So the ability to really focus on those critical few things that really move the dial for entrepreneurs, I think has made me a better comp professional. Um, and so with that, um, Gershon, let's just get into the conversation. And once again, I don't even think you need to wait till the end to ask a question. If we're talking about something and you have a perspective or something that happened in one of your organizations or even clients, and you'd like to throw, you know, put the, you know, go after the ball, uh, let's have a conversation about this. So awesome. All righty. So we're going to start with key trends. Um, what are some key trends that you're finding for 2021. Now that businesses are coming out of the out of the pandemic as we're opening up the world. Sure. So I think you know one of the key trends is not surprisingly because we didn't know um, where the world was going, and for many, not all, but many companies, last year was a pretty tight financial year, and they were just unsure what was going on in the future. So many salary budgets were curtailed or just completely cut off. Um, you know, there were firms that actually reduced salaries last year. Some brought them back. Others are still in a little bit of a fear mode and they haven't brought them back. But the reality is the momentum for many businesses have picked up. And so the question is, what are they doing now? Because employees are like, I didn't get a bonus last year. You froze my salary. I'm working harder than ever. I'm, I'm on burnout mode. Now what? And so I think there's a couple of different ways um, employers are looking at this. Do they do a mid-year salary, like prorated, um, now that they're sort of more sure of where their financials are going? Some are thinking, you know, maybe now's the time to institute some sort of profit sharing, right? So they're using it as a cultural shift, compensation to say, how are we all pulling together um, and evaluating that? Certainly for organizations that have bonus structures, um, I, what I'm finding interestingly is that um, in the past, many bonus structures were sort of more individual, especially for small business, individually, how did you do as an individual? Getting through COVID forced leadership teams to really act more like a team, even in organizations where that hadn't happened in the past. And they're realizing even bonus structures, probably the financial metrics and what success looks like should incorporate um, a significant amount of how does the leadership team or the managers work together in order to affect change. Um, so that's, that's one. I think, you know, I can't not talk about compensation without talking about culture. Um, I think compensation is part of, the, um, part of the equation, but I think organizations now, the things that work, the things that didn't for them last year with regards to what helped motivate their employees when times were tough, um, 
are trying to institutionalize some of those cultural imperatives, whether that is uh, more frequent communication. I think organizations realized and leaders realized they needed to communicate more frequently when so much was changing on last year and realized that sort of two-way dialogue and that having a, a, a sort of finger on the pulse of their employees was something that they wanna keep going even as things start to ease up. It may look differently because we wanna get out of sort of that emergency mode, that survival mode, but I, I do believe that that's something that's gonna continue and be very beneficial for organizations of all size. So employees are sometimes frustrated. And now that the world again is, is opening up, business is picking up, our people are sometimes thinking of leaving. Now, how does that, how does compensation in terms of, I guess, cash versus other things versus you were talking about culture and using compensation for culture versus using compensation. I mean, let me clarify using, you were saying that sometimes people use equity as a way to add compensation should. I guess my question is how did they, is this going to get people to stay? Is this going to make people who are staying anyway happier? It's a great question, Gershon, and I think it's it's multifaceted. So certainly, I don't know, and having worked for some Wall Street firms that were really toxic, when you have a toxic culture, there's a compensation premium. If I'm going to be in this, you know, what show, you better pay me X more if I'm going to tolerate this nightmare boss, this nightmare situation, this constant stress. Or like I've gone into, I'm the sort of the turnaround specialist. So I'm parachuting organizations that were upside down and going through massive chaos you're gonna bring me in to do that, you better pay me a premium. Now that's not ideal, right? Like what you want to be able to do is have a multifaceted employee value proposition with your employees where you pay them fairly, you pay them for their individual and overall contribution, and you don't have to necessarily overpay them or pay them a significant premium to market because your culture is a nightmare and it's toxic or your manager is awful, right? And I think it's very, very natural and understandable. Listen, at all levels, not just large corporate, but particularly in smaller businesses where there are fewer layers and you know there's an owner or a manager, to sometimes really have to take a hard look. And if you're seeing turnover, it's easy to say it must be the compensation, but oftentimes it's just the symptom, it's not the cause especially if you're seeing rotating uh, people in a particular job, right? And yes, you could throw more compensation on there, but at some point people are gonna get frustrated and quit if, if there are other things going on. So um, I do think equity for the right leadership team for the right purposes as a long-term, once again, motivator versus a preventative right? Um, like they're building, you have a three-year, five-year strategic plan, you know your critical employees, and they're actually going to really be critical fuel for you to, as a leader, for you to grow your business and maybe even get a capital raise. And if they're not successful and they're not fully engaged, there's a risk. Um, but I think I think of it as much as that sort of community wealth building culture than it is, boy, you know, out of fear-based, I better lock them in. 
understandable to feel that way, but if that's all that's going on, there's probably other risks that aren't being addressed. And I see some chat. Yeah, we've got a few questions or notes. Yeah, no, absolutely. As far as different levels of uh, toxic culture uh, based upon generations, right? Um, and, you know, once again, generationally, um, what, and now we're not just talking about millennials. We used to think about millennials as the young ones. They're, they're, they're having kids and owning houses and stuff. It's really Gen Z's, right? So we've got almost four generations of the workforce right now. And so not only is it manager, but compensation, compensation won't keep them if they feel like there's no growth, right? Like, where am I going? What am I learning? Where's my path? Now, it's harder for smaller businesses to answer that question. So especially when there's not as many roles, um, where when you're a large organization, there's a lot of little lungs on that ladder. So what I really recommend for smaller businesses is what is the learning agenda? What is the skill learning agenda? Um, even if the titles are definitely more broad-based. Um, and you're, you're going to have to mentor them and sort of keep tabs of what their hopes and dreams are. Um, of, of their career. And I think, you know, at some point, everybody's entitled to their own aspirations and career development. And as long as you realize at some point, you're not gonna have, you, you know they wanna go in a certain type of industry or a certain type of role, and you don't have that in your organization, you can still create a win-win. You can foster their growth. They can perform really well for you, but you should also be backfilling your talent knowing at some point they're probably likely to leave and that's okay. That's okay. If you're doing your talent pipeline the right way and you're allowing them to grow, they'll give you as much as they have to give you, but you need to be nurturing um, you know, your, your talent pipeline as well. And just be forthright about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, but yeah. compensation's not gonna solve that. And once again, it's very natural for organizations to say, oh, it must be compensation the reason that they're leaving. Um, and it could be a multitude of other things going on. Interesting. It actually relates to something that you and I discussed. Yeah. Not too long ago. Yeah, and it's, it's prevalent in a lot of organizations and particularly once again, for smaller businesses, which is why with the smaller businesses, it's really important to have those open and honest conversations um, and versus sort of attachment to your talent, fostering your talent and really understanding what their career goals are, you can really truly create a win-win. And listen, careers are long and wide. You never know when you might re-recruit them back and they'll remember you as a great employer and a great mentor. I mean, I've hired back people 15, 20 years later. Now that I've landed, I've had at least 15 emails already saying, hey, you got any open positions? Because I've continued to mentor these people throughout their careers. So um, right now I don't have enough open positions for the, for the emails I've gotten. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. What do you see as the biggest risk related to compensation over the next year? Um, I think the, the biggest risk is assuming that because unemployment is high, you can be miserly with your compensation budgeting and strategy. Because I think that is a broad statement, but when you look at what is the talent and the skill set you need for your organization, is it even applicable? I can't tell you how many um, times I've heard in the last couple of months, oh, well, unemployment's so low, like I don't need to worry about it. They're lucky to have a job. 
maybe, maybe not. Um, I'll be honest, there's a lot of industries that are really, really struggling to get the right skilled workers in the right job, you know, engaged. And so don't, don't sort of get lazy looking at the unemployment numbers and, and thinking, oh, your employers are just lucky to be there. Um, I think that is sort of a, probably a symptom to other, pro other problems if, if that is there, but I have heard it a number of times. So I, I do think that's probably one of the bigger risks. Got it. Interesting. All right. So let's talk a little bit about pay equity. Yes. Um, is pay equity a small business thing or is that just for big businesses? Listen, we're all subject to the laws, right? As far as you need to, Tim, feel free to preach here. Uh, these are not laws just for large companies, right? Now, is it a different analysis and a different way of looking at large groups of individuals in you know, huge corporations? Of course it is. But listen, this, and I don't like to, when we talk about this conversation, um, I know it's very easy to lead with the legal risk, right? What's the downside? How will I be punished if I don't get this right? I'd like to flip this. Like, how are you doing the right thing and engaging your employees and being fair for the similar work um, versus, and, and particularly, listen, not just small business, even large corporations. I remember the day when recruiters were like, oh, I got this person on the cheap. I got them really cheap. They, you know, the job is really going for, let's say, 100 but they were willing to take 80, aren't I great? Well, not if the, the job is really worth 100 and at some point it's actually gonna have a pay equity risk because the reality is, and because I, I, I coach individually and even in groups, negotiation for women and their pay. Um, whether we like to admit it or not, many women are not as comfortable in the negotiating arena when it comes to their pay. What's considered, um, um, positively assertive uh, for men to, to negotiate oftentimes is perceived behaviorally as abrasive if a woman does it. Um, and so there's sort of, there's a lot of things that go into um, negotiating one's pay that, you know, um, if they start out low, it only gets worse over time. You know, you think about 3% per year and how that compounds. What's interesting is that a number of years ago, there was some regulations, um, some laws. Unfortunately, it's not national, but it's in many, many jurisdictions and many companies have instituted it nationally anyway, that recruiters and um, any business owners are not allowed to ask your prior comp history. What it was meant to do was help mitigate uh, pay equity inequity. So if for some reason, like women have historically been lower paid and then they go and they say, well, you know, I was just getting paid 80. Okay, we'll give you a little bit more. And a guy was getting paid 100 for the same job. They'll give him a little more. It just perpetuates it. However, what recruiters are now asking is what are your pay expectations? And believe it or not, a law that was really meant to help women oftentimes sends them into a spiral of, what do you mean I need to, I need to name my worth? And it's actually created some, um, some complications. And I, I don't necessarily believe it's, move the dial as forward as I think it was originally intended because they don't really know how to price themselves. Um, and so I know um, for organizations, listen, women have to get better at negotiating and asking for their worth. 
But I also think that organizations need to reasonably understand their range of pay and not think they got a good deal by getting someone on the cheap and pay them fairly out of the gate for their, for their experience and for their expertise. Um, perfect example is I know, um, and th this is easy too, because it was like a formulaic comp thing that when I was at a FinTech company a couple of years ago and they were hiring a professional services team and there were like four or five of these rainmakers. And there was a woman who had phenomenal experience was making a lateral move. She was gonna be um, asked to do the exact same job with the exact same sales quota, but because she was making a lateral move and had come at the job a slightly different angle, they were going to try and pay her half for the same amount of productivity. And they thought, oh, look, I'm getting her on the cheap. And I had to go nose to nose, toe to toe, to say, absolutely freaking not. If you think she's good enough to do this job, if you're comfortable with her lateral walk across to be able to hit this target, if you don't think she can do it, then don't hire her. But it, and it is, once again, it was even more um, obvious because it was a quota-based formulaic pay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna take some unwinding for people to really think about um, you know, what's the right pay regardless of background. If, if you're willing to hire this person and you think you're, they're good enough to do the job, then pay them fairly. Now, with, with that example, was that company, would they have done the same thing if it was a man making a lateral move? Was it the lateral move or was it the fact that it was a woman? I don't know. I don't know. She happened to be the only woman. She happened, I didn't think, negotiate as aggressively as many of the men I'd seen. Um, and once again, I'm acting on behalf of the organization. It's not like I could call her and say, lady, what are you doing? But I could say from an organization risk perspective that certainly from the pay equity perspective, there's nothing more obvious than something quota-based and the company would have had a really hard time defending why they did that. Um, so yes, that's a great question. Um, I think it was a combination, to be honest. I do. I think it was a combination. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so are there unique challenges for small businesses with these kind of issues? Yeah, listen, it's like the economics are tighter, right? Um, and so the ability, sort of what you see is a large scale to say, wow, I got someone cheap. Isn't that good? Doesn't that help my margins? Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, you've, you've got to think of, once again, not risk or fear-based and scarcity mindset, but am I paying this person fairly, right? Am I doing the right thing? Um, and I think when it comes to, it's not just when you hire them, it's even when you think about promotions and sort of what's the bare minimum I can get away with versus, um, you know, what am I asking this person to do? Um, when, even in organizations, it's been statistically proven that oftentimes men are much more aggressive in saying, I'm not taking the job unless you X, Y, and Z, where more times than are not, not always, by the way, these are broad-based, women are like, let me help out. And then like one or two years into actually already doing the additional work, they're like, then they get the money. There was a woman I helped actually, um, and she was leaving to, to take on a new position. And I got the call and she was already in negotiations. And she'd already signaled she was willing to move over flat. It wasn't even for an increase. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she goes, well, my, my current company, 
just gave me an increase. So can I really ask for an increase in the new company? And I'm like, I'm like, well, if you just got promoted, how long ago were you actually doing this new job? She goes, 18 months ago. So she wasn't recently promoted. She was given the technically the promotion, the work for 18 months. They didn't legitimize it until 18 months later. And they certainly only gave her the pay 18 months later. Where oftentimes, once again, for men, that's not as frequent a pattern. You do see it on both sides, but if you want to talk in sort of generalities, that's what I've seen a lot more. I have a different question, or it kind of relates to this. And I'm all for the, you know, avoiding the scarcity mindset and thinking generous. But sometimes you have businesses which just don't think like that. Like we have a client I can think of right now who like their motto for everything is getting people on on the cheap. And that's just how they do it. And they use COVID as an excuse to squeeze everyone and I'm sure there's lots of companies that did that. Yeah. Um, and the truth well, is- legally be miserly across the board. Right. Right, Tim? If they're gonna, if they're gonna underpay, then just make sure it's not, you're, you don't have a gender trapped because mm-hmm. the women won't complain and the men are gonna bitch. Excuse my French, right? So that's right. okay. I mean, listen, there's a strategy for organizations, whether it's you know physical resources or human capital cheap, 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 and they don't mind the turnover and they don't mind the cheap product as long as it's consistent and long as it's a strategy that goes across and people are willing. Okay, that's that's a choice, but just make sure it's consistent. Got it. So it's bad business in general, but if you do it across the board to men, to women, to everyone, then- Yeah, listen, that's a strategy, right? You don't mind the turnover. You think, you know, uh, people are just a commodity. Um, That's certainly a choice. Um, But, you know, just make sure it's consistent. Yeah, the particular client I'm thinking of did it to a male who had a PhD and was doing, he's like, squeezed that person down to like $25 an hour, which to me is- Yeah. And it's funny. I've seen that happen to PhDs, men too. It's like, because they get involved, they get very invested in the the content of the job and the intellectual challenge. And so, and once again, when I talk gender pay, I know women, listen, I've always been a very good negotiator. I certainly do not fall into the female typical camp, but I know guys who've struggled. And so what I talk about is sort of just generally, because we do see the patterns, right? And I know this is something else that Gershon, you and I talked about. What I'm not talking about is people who are, these are like jobs, like numbers of hours. It's not saying um, a man that's working full-time and a woman that's working part-time, that's the same thing. Or that they've decided to take a break on their career and, um, and then, you know, and then come back full-time, right? If they come back full time and they really have the competency and you're willing to hire them because you think their skill set stayed sharp and you think that they brought other capabilities and competencies for the time that they were doing it and then pay them fairly. But even within jobs, there's like reasonable ranges, right? Based upon skill set and academics and whatever else. You just don't want to be um, sort of. Um, have no set of facts and data to support differentiation, right? It doesn't mean equal and equitable are not the same thing. Okay. 
Um, and I'm happy to, because I saw your reaction there. Do you want to get into that a bit? The difference between equal and equitable? Yeah, let's do that. So what does that mean for you? Equitable to me means fair. I didn't necessarily have a problem with it. I'm just thinking. Yeah, about but it. I, I think um, I just because I have a feeling that because it landed with you, so that's why I'm sort of curious if that's something we want to kind of get into a little bit more. Equal sounds to me like identical, and equitable, equitable, equitable sounds to me like it means fair. Exactly. And exactly. What I'm thinking is how. Are you saying it could be equitable without being equal or are you saying it could be equal without being equitable? Uh, actually, it's funny, both, right? So depending on what somebody's contribution is. But the key is that I think sometimes when people hear pay equity, they think equal. What I have to pay every man and every woman exactly the same regardless of. And then, you know, the, the conversation gets shut down because they just think, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. Equitable is fair. Now, listen, there are times where equal is unfair because one of the, and by the way, unfair for the man or the woman, because one is significantly more experienced, much, much higher contribution, much longer, you know, let's say um, territory of what they're trying to do or, you know, scope um, and size of responsibility. Um, even if the title is the same, sometimes the scope of responsibility is much greater than for one person versus another, even the title is identical. Um, so I think it's really about embracing what does equitable look like, right? Um, and what I would also challenge in that, I can't help but go into once again, there's a lot of research that shows there are labels given to men that are positive, that are what people perceive as successful, that when women do similar behaviors is considered not positive whether it's aggressive or assertive or a whole host of other, um, you know, other descriptors. It was very interesting. There's an organization called Catalyst that really talks about gender uh, parity, does some amazing work. And a couple of years ago during their sort of gender pay day, they had a, um, you could put your, your headshot in this thing. And what is the word that typically a man is described and how you're typically described? and how to flip the conversation based upon whether you are considered one and it, you know, it should be positive. So to the extent I'd say, once again, look at the narratives that you, you're thinking about what makes a job successful and, and, and challenge yourself to say, am I really holding both women and men to an equal standard you know, as far as what success looks like? So suppose you have a, you had two people which had the same job and this is what you pay for this job. Let's say one is overqualified, could be the man or the woman. Right. Is that, well, so, and this gets into the whole concept of overqualified, which I, I don't know if that, if that's a Pandora's box we want to open here, but you have two people, they're getting paid the same thing, but let's say the woman has a master's degree and the man has no college degree and the woman maybe is more capable than the man but this job doesn't need she's let's say overqualified for this job on the one hand i hear it's not equitable maybe to pay someone who's twice as qualified the same amount but on the flip side that's just 
That's just she's what decided to take that job. Now, once again, I, I'd be curious. And once again, I don't really put, I've had people who've had Yale degrees and their peer who had a local college degree. And I thought the local college degree person was much better at the job than the person who came from Yale. So, so I think once again, there's a range that roles have and then look at their performance. Like how are they performing? It might be the woman that has the master's degree that is, is you know, doing much better. Maybe, maybe not. No, I do think you're going to have to defend. I mean, let's say for some reason, you know, she's on paper much, much more qualified and the person isn't as qualified. And once again, she's decided to take a job where she was significantly overqualified for and has agreed for that pay. I don't think entrepreneurs or anyone should have to overpay just because someone decides they want to take a smaller job. You know, um, I think you need to pay them once again, equitably, fairly for the role and certainly for their contribution and their performance. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And just from an economics perspective, if it was a man and perhaps if it was a woman that was way overqualified, they may end up leaving because you're paying them for the job, not for their. Exactly. And listen, it's um, it's you know, it's it's a challenge. For, I know there are folks who've decided they wanted to take a career change and they didn't want the big roles and they knew they needed to take they wanted to take a step in a different direction. They didn't really want to be like, whatever, a CFO anymore. And they just wanted to be the, you know, chief controller or something, because that's all they wanted. That was the stress. They had parent issues or children issues or whatever, just life, they wanted to live life. And, you know, many, it's hard for them to convince business owners or just even leaders that, yeah, I'll be okay with the smaller job, right? Um, and that I'm not going to leave and this isn't just a holding pattern. So I think when you're, um, when you're hiring someone like that, it really requires extra sets of conversations to understand why they're pivoting, what's their, without going into like personal private stuff to really get comfortable on that they're ready to contribute at the job that you've got hired. And they're just, they're not just, they're waiting until they can find the right job. Thank you. All right. Couple more questions, then we'll we'll open up to the crowd. Um, other than compensation, what should business owners keep their eyes on as it relates to employees? Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned it before. I will preach it to the heavens: um, culture, organizational culture. If you don't curate it, it will definitely curate itself, and and could be this eight-headed monster that unfortunately is harder to train later on. Um, understand like what's your organization's purpose. And by the way, it doesn't have, you could be a manufacturer, you could be a small business, but what's your why? What are you really trying to provide to the marketplace? What's that contribution? What's that differentiation? And really how do your employees help be part of that journey? There's tons of statistics that show people want to feel part of something. And even to Noah's point, Gen X and millennials even more so, although I think there's been certainly a wake up call for us Gen Xers and either, either um, older that they really wanna be part of something. So you don't have to pay that compensation premium. So you can really enroll people and engage them on a fundamental way where the company gets more productivity and they feel more personal fulfillment proactively curate what your culture is. And by the way, it's totally okay if you don't know yet. It's a journey. 
Um, and I know sometimes it may seem like overwhelming. What is it? It's nebulous. Work with someone, take the time, have the conversations. The nice thing is, is because it is a conversation, by the fact of just going through the journey, you end up enrolling and engaging your employees. Just the process alone of starting to go through it and articulate it is a, is a real engager of employees. So certainly that. The next thing I think employers really, really need to take a look on, particularly since COVID, is what are your skill gaps? Um, you need to start thinking not just where you are now, but what are the skills um, and competencies that your technical experts, your managers, your leaders are going to need two or three years out and start training them, understanding how you're going to get them from here to there. Right. And, and, and if you're going to have to find it in the marketplace, proactively start networking with people who are, um, are really experts in that, whether it's new recruiters, recruiters who really specialize in particular areas. Um, but it takes time to build that. Right. And listen, developing skills isn't the only thing leaders, managers, employees are doing. Um, and so in order to make sure that it's not just a rush and a push and kind of scary, but just once again, part of your culture, really start figuring out what those skill gaps are and then sort of thread it into your day-to-day -day, um, sort of agenda and your sort of quarterly operating plan. Yeah, no, that, that, that is important. There's one thing I want to mention that... Uh, when I used to work at a bank, we had this uh, annual meeting we went to where the bank used to call and I guess their hedge fund clients, uh, they had a big trading operation. Um, and they used to bring in someone to talk about, I guess, interesting things. It was like a three day, you know, get to know us and they had interesting speakers. So one of them was a speaker talking about culture. And I remember them saying like, you have to understand something that you mentioned today about the different generations. And I think Bob mentioned in the comments as well, something you have to understand the different generations. They're like, you know, you have baby boomers managing millennials. This was, you know, five years ago. Mm -hmm. There were more millennials or the young people then. And they're like, you know, when people come to work and they want to have fun and you're the boss and you're like, we don't do fun here. And uh, I found that interesting about how you have to kind of understand who your young people are yeah. and what they want and what they're looking for. And I'm not really sure how to figure that out exactly. But well, I think also it's funny. It's sometimes fun seems like the destination versus the way, right? You could sort of make things fun that might've been in, in fact, intimidating and scary. So it's an overlay to productivity. It's not like let's have a foosball table. And I think what's really awesome, unfortunately, it's silver lining of COVID because it was so hard on people. I think the perks used to be, we'll give people foosball tables and we'll give them fun beer halls on the roof and we'll give in. And now we realize it's about cultivating culture and support for not just the employees, but their families. And to be frank, mental health. Like how do people just function more effectively? And so what is really, it's not sort of the, sexy perks, but the fundamental things that make someone healthy and happy and fulfilled. And that really, really got highlighted during COVID. Um, and so, yeah, fun isn't a destination. Like we all, like, it's not a frat house, but there is ways. I mean, I know I grew up on, uh, on Wall Street and it was like hazy, 
those guys, they got hazed and they got beat up and they got screamed at and they got humiliated. And so they assumed the next generation, that's what they had to do the next duration. It was just sort of the honor of going through the boot camp until some people said, and even in my generation, yeah, no, that's not going to work. No, thanks. Not happening. And then, you know, and, and, and realizing, listen, there's a different way to do it. Um, so, yeah. All right. Interesting. Let's, let's open it up to the floor. Does anyone have any, oh, we have a couple of comments from Bob. The Let's second, see. the strategy. Yeah, Bob, you're absolutely time. right. It does ultimately cost more. Like the cost of turnover is so significant um, that, you know, I, for organizations that believe this turn, I, like there's no convincing them otherwise, really. No matter, I've tried a few times, managers, but you're absolutely right. Invariably, it is always significantly more expensive. And it also, to the extent they care about customer experience, that kind of turnover is just absolutely toxic. Really, really implodes any kind of successful customer experience when you have that much turnover. And if I could just weigh in quickly, um, in terms of culture, the damage to culture turnover is just a key uh, component to crappy culture. <clears throat> if you have a revolving door, there's no way you can generate positive culture in any organization. Yeah. And you know what's really awful in culture? And once again, this is it's um, tolerating crappy employees. Nothing will undermine and demotivate a really good employee by seeing you tolerate an awful one. Right. Yeah, bad culture. Bad culture always results in the bad people staying and the yeah, good people leaving. Absolutely. Yep. For sure. Another question in the chat from Sarah. Let's see. How do non-monetary compensation vary between employees of different generations? How do organizations compensate for this discrepancy? So it's funny. Um, I think pre-COVID there was. And once again, we'll see where things go. I think there's been more blending since COVID because I think people of my generation and over um, just assumed work was a certain way and like shouldn't expect certain types of flexibility and balance and everything else. And now that we've been through this year, I'm finding the older generations sounding a lot more like the younger generations as far as what they expect, as far as benefits and wellness and flexibility and and whatnot. So I'm it's gonna be really interesting to see the data trends in the next 18 months and how generations really are looking for something different. Like so for example, mental health across the board, every generation is looking for support for themselves and their families. Every single generation. Um, flexibility, looking for hybrid versus fully um, going back to the workplace. I'm seeing that through pretty much every generation. Once again, individuals in certain jobs, you know, are anomalies. Um, in certain jobs, certainly you can't. Um, so yeah, I, I find COVID has kind of smoothed smoothed it across the the generational uh, divide a bit. Interesting. So maybe they'll all get along. Yeah, listen, you know what? Every I don't know about you, but I remember like, like, and they're like, oh, those damn Gen Xers. And they're like, oh, those damn millennials. Oh, these damn, we just have to embrace that people are different. They're going to, it's okay to be different. It's okay to have different motivators. And listen, I don't know any time, like, 
managers were complaining about their younger employees and whatever since the dawn of time. You know, what, what is the thing they're complaining about? I know when people were complaining about millennials, I've had some of my absolute rock star best employees be millennials. And to be frank, I think if you're a, a manager or a leader with a fixed mindset, I'm here to train and teach and give you my knowledge and tell you what to do, then yeah, you're going to be frustrated. But if you have more of a growth mindset, I love having Gen Z and millennials on my team because I learn so much. It challenges me. Now, if you don't want to be, I get it. You're exhausted. You've got all these responsibilities and it just seems like one more thing to worry about by being challenged and having to think differently. But if you wouldn't really embrace it from a growth mindset and you assume you've got the right people, let's start with there, you've got quality of the right people, that uncomfortability is worth its weight in gold because your clients are going to have that too, right? You know, your employees, your clients, your markets, your vendors, and it's, it's worth seeing things through other people's lenses. And that's not just the cop expert in me, that's the coach in me. I think there's gold there. Yeah, and I'm not a comp expert or a coach. And I think seeing things from other people's perspective is is important to, uh, to understanding where they're coming from because otherwise yeah. you're not going to be able, you can't even disagree with someone. If you can't see their perspective, then you might be missing what they're saying. Right. Exactly. And oftentimes the language right. that is used is different, but the essence of what they're trying to get at is actually quite similar, right? So if we, we sort of don't react to sort of the language and maybe the way it's being communicated, but we listen to the essence of what they're really trying to accomplish and what they believe in and how they're trying to contribute and be fulfilled, oftentimes we're much closer than we, we think we are. And then we have a comment here from Bob that long-term employees lead to long-term customers, reduce churn and higher profitability. And, uh, you know, Bob's all into people and everything, as many of you on here know, but he's also my partner and one of our CFOs and been doing finance for his, a lot of his career. And one of the things I like to quote over from him is investing in your employees, besides for being a good thing to do, is will lead to your high, highest ROI. Yeah. So that was, I think, a good uh, recap. Uh, Absolutely. Parts of this conversation. Um, all right. Any final questions for Carrie Ann? All right. What does investing in your employees include? Um, great question, Adina. I think it depends on your employee base. Um, certainly, and sort of the economics of your business, but there is a portfolio of things you can look at. Certainly, you know, good medical coverage. Um, uh, all sorts of different types of wellness, um, you know, if it's possible for 1K match. Um, yeah, and, and whatever sort of works, what is, it, knowing your employees, what is the thing that is going to be valued by them and help you with productivity? Listen, the reason why Google and others have dry cleaning and on-site cafes and all these things isn't, just because they're trying to be nice, it keeps employees at the office because they don't have to worry about these things, right? So it's a win-win. So I think when you think about um, investing in your employees, think about the things that would be a win-win. If this was taking care of them and they had this, 
would they would their more of their mind share also be on work and and driving uh, productivity and value for your customers? You know, you know, Karen, when I when I think of investing in, in employees, I I agree with everything you've just said, but I think there's there's a lot more to it. I think think about it in terms of your family, giving your time. When you're in a leadership position, showing interest in your people, delivering a really good first impression the first day they start onboarding properly, uh, paying attention to their training programs, ensuring that there's really good communications within the organization. All those baby steps lead to a great culture. And that's when I say invest in your employees. Yes, there's absolutely the hard cash items. But it's also the intangibles, the same way yeah. you invest in relationships. Oh, absolutely. And that's why they're, uh, they're using that term employee experience, which I love because it's a walk across from the talent part of the organization and the rewards part so that it's holistic. When she said investing, I was assuming she was talking about hard dollars because of where we were as far as purely investing. But you're absolutely right. Like, Think about your overall employee experience. Like, what are those touch points that are really um, marrying them to the organizational mission and the team? You're absolutely right. The kind of the question of, would you want to work here? Yeah. And then making it into a place where you would want to be. Exactly. Or, or the or the even better question that somebody else asked me was, would you want your children to work here? <laughs> that really brings it home. Yeah, we might tolerate stuff, but I'd never, you know, my daughter, completely different. So I love that, actually. Absolutely. Well, that's compliments to Kevin Jennings. That's awesome. And once again, I mean, I can't stress enough when it comes to compensation, you know, numbers are often the start of the really good question, right? So oftentimes we think there's a answer. Um, you know, when you think what is a salary number or anything else, think, is there something else I should be asking about the situation, about the employee, about my expectations for the role of how I look for success? Um, I know it does take a, a bit more work, but like I said before, on something else, there's gold there. There's gold to be mined there. You will be a better leader and a manager and a more successful entrepreneur, I think, if you kind of get into the underbelly of those sets of questions. Alrighty. So I think we're going to wind this up now. Thank you very much, Carrie Ann. My pleasure. Um, providing us with all this insight today. It was a pleasure to have you on and a lot of, a lot of good food for thought and strategies. So we really appreciate it. Thank you to all of our guests who joined us today. Good to see you, most of you again, and some of you I'm seeing your name or your face for the first time, um, but thanks to everyone who joined us. And uh, again, thank you to my partner, Bob, and to Aris and Buddy, who's not here at the moment, um, but who was here for much of this. Thank you to our team of CFOs for joining us and to Haley for putting all this together. And have a great day, everyone. Have a great day. Happy June. Happy June. All right.